Hey everyone, this is Pastor Jonathan. I just wanted to thank you for tuning in and listening to our sermon from Connection Church in Lead. And I wanted to encourage you, while listening to a sermon online can be very helpful and edifying, and we do appreciate you listening, if you're not connected into a local body of believers, I would encourage you to do so. We, we are commanded not to neglect the gathering together. So find a gospel-centered, Bible-preaching church where you can submit to the elders and fellowship there. If you don't have a church home and you are in the Leeds, South Dakota area, feel free to join us. We would love to come have you join us and worship with us. With that said, thank you and enjoy the sermon. This morning, we are going to be continuing on in our study of the epistle to the Ephesians. We're moving into chapter 5. As I'm sure all of you know, I'm sure you're probably tired of hearing me say this, but I'll remind once again, the book of Ephesians is split into two different sections. The first three chapters are heavy theology, where Paul dives into the truth of the gospel, the mystery of the gospel is unveiled, and then the mystery of the unity between the Jews and the Gentiles is unveiled there as well in chapter 3. And then... He ends that section, he moves into a time of application. And uh, I've I've been jokingly saying that this is the point where we'll get into the controversial things. This is the point where we'll get into the difficult texts. Well, that joke becomes a reality in this passage. Over these next three weeks, we'll be dealing with what it means for Christians to be imitators of God. What it means that we were formerly darkness and now called into the light. What does it mean that Christians are called to expose darkness? It's a hard truth. That's a difficult thing to live out. And then next week we'll be diving into the the truth of marriage, how God made man and woman, very controversial topic in our day and age, the the roles that God has given them within marriage. And the week after that we'll be dealing with what we are to do with our children. So this is in some ways a, a prefatory message for those things. But I want to give some warning that this will not be a light sermon. This will not be an easy passage, but will be a passage that is rich with truth. I like to say about this, this particular section in Ephesians, Paul gives us a list of commands that are easy to understand, but are incredibly difficult to live out. So, this morning, we're going to open, we're going to read the text, and then we're going to pray And we are specifically going to pray that God would apply this to our heart and that he would give us the ability to obey him. So this in mind, I ask you to stand with me and let us read the holy word of God. Ephesians chapter 5, verses 1 through 21. Therefore, be imitators of God as beloved children and walk in love just as Christ also loved us and gave himself up for us an offering and a sacrifice to God as a fragrant aroma. But sexual immorality or any impurity or greed must not even be named among you, as is proper among saints, nor filthiness and foolish talk or coarse jesting, which are not fitting, but rather giving thanks. For this you know with certainty, that no one sexual, immoral, or impure, or greedy who is an idolater has an inheritance in the kingdom of Christ and God. Let no one deceive you with empty words, for because of these things the wrath of God comes upon the sons of disobedience. Therefore do not be partakers with them. For you were formerly darkness, and now you are light in the Lord. Walk as children of light. 
For the fruit of that light consists in all goodness and righteousness and truth, trying to learn what is pleasing to the Lord. And do not participate in the unfruitful works of darkness, but instead even expose them. For it is disgraceful even to speak of the things which are done by them in secret. But all things become visible when they are exposed by the light. For everything that becomes visible is light. For this reason it says, Awake, sleeper, and arise from the dead, and Christ will shine on you. Therefore look carefully how you walk, not as unwise but as wise, redeeming the time because the days are evil. On account of this, do not be foolish, but understand what the will of the Lord is. And do not get drunk with wine, for that is dissipation, but be filled with the Spirit, speaking to one another in psalms and hymns and spiritual songs, singing and making melody with your heart to the Lord, always giving thanks for all things in the name of our Lord Jesus Christ, to God, even the Father, and being subject to one another in the fear of Christ. Behold the word of God. Let's pray. Dear Heavenly Father, Lord, this morning I ask that you would be with us. I ask that you would open up our hearts to hear your word. And Lord, specifically I ask that you would be with me. Help me to speak the truth of your word. Lord, let it not be my words, but your word that is, that is spoken this morning. Lord, help us as your people to obey you. Help us to hear these commands. And I pray that you would help us to obey them. God, I ask that you would sanctify us through your spirit. That you would give us strength to obey what you have commanded us to do. So Lord, in essence, my prayer this morning is to quote the prayer of the great saint of old, St. Augustine. Oh Lord, command what you will and give what you command. Lord, command what is right and what is good and then give us the ability to obey your commands. We pray these things in Jesus' name. Amen. You may be seated. You know, I opened this morning with a prayer and even referenced uh, St. Augustine's prayer. This is a very famous prayer in church history. And it's famous because it caused a lot of controversy. Uh, imagine that. A theologian causing controversy. Who would suspect such a thing? But Augustine prayed a prayer one time in service. And he said, O oh Lord, command what you will and give what you command. And in essence, what he is saying is, Lord, command what is righteous. Tell us to do what you want us to do. But then enable us to do this. And this caused controversy because there were many in the church during this portion of history who believed that man was kind of an autonomous agent, that man could obey God based off of his own power, you know, that you could kind of summon up the will within yourself to obey what God commands. Well, this prayer slaps that directly in the face because the reality is we cannot obey God without him enabling us, without him giving us the strength, the, the ability to obey him. So I bring this up because the reality is God calls us to be and to do many different things. God calls us to be certain things, to be righteous, to be holy, to be light. He calls all people everywhere to repent. But he also calls us to do many things. You can't spend any time in scripture without coming across the list of commands. And these commands are summed up in do's and don'ts. There are many times in scripture where we are confronted, we're smacked in the face with things that we enjoy doing, things we want to do, and God says, don't do that. Right? Scripture's full of those commands. Old Testament, New Testament, from page one to the last page of the book, right? It's filled with commands, don't do this. There are other commands that say, do this. But the thing I want us to remember is this is fundamentally good. God telling us what not to do and what to do is good and righteous. 
This is a good thing. God did not just go, okay, here's how to be saved. Here's three chapters and you're done. Good job. Way to go. Go home and drink mimosas on the beach. Your work is done, right? That's not what he called us to do. There are lists of commands that we ought to obey and we ought to apply. And immediately this will bring some people into the church. There's many people in the church today who would say, this is not binding on us. Yes, there are many commands in scripture, but since the gospel, you know, since salvation has, has come about through Christ, we're no longer commanded to obey, right? We're no longer commanded to obey any of these commands. That's patently false. We are called, if you've been with us in any amount of time in this letter to the Ephesians, we are called to obey in light of our salvation. Because God has saved us, we are to love him. And therefore, we're to refrain from doing the things that make him angry, right? The things that hurt and break his heart, the things that are wrong and sinful. And we are to do the things that are righteous because we love him. And these commands are binding on us. This is an interesting side note. I'm going to be trying to move quickly through this, but I want to bring this up. In Colossians chapter 4, verse 16, it's the closing of, of the book of Colossians, Paul writing to the church in Colossia. He says this, when this letter is read among you, have it also read in the church of the Laodiceans. And you, for your part, read my letter that is coming from Laodicea. This is an interesting side, and a lot of times we, we, we pull away from the, close, the openings and the closings of these books. But I'm just curious, how many of you, during this week, did your devotions in first Laodiceans? None of us, right? So what is Paul referencing? We don't have a letter to the Laodiceans. Well, it's possible that he wrote them a letter, but more likely... What Paul is referring to is this book we're studying right here. Ephesus is a circulatory letter. And the church in Ephesus was the capital city of the region where Laodicea was. And so Paul is commanding the church in Colossae to send his letter to Laodicea, to the Ephesian region, to be read and obeyed there. So they are called to obey the letter to the Colossians. And the Colossians are called to obey the letter to the Ephesians. You see, these letters were sent throughout the church, and they were binding on all Christians everywhere. And this is true for us today. We are studying the same book that Paul commanded the, the, the Colossians and the Laodiceans to study and obey. This is still binding on us. And as I opened, I said that these commands that we're studying are easy to understand, but they're difficult to live out. And that's true on both sides. When God says don't do something, it's confronting our human nature. It's confronting the sinfulness and the darkness that is within our heart. You know, it's Paul's prayer where he says, I don't do what I want to do, but I do what I don't want to do. We all have that struggle, that fight within us. But we can understand them. And part of this community, the reason for this community, is these things are hard to live out. But we are to encourage one another to live these out. But primarily, we need God to give us what he commands. We need the Spirit of God to work within us to enable us to obey these things. So as we open in this text, this particular passage is a list of don'ts. It's a list of don't do this, don't do this, don't do this. Primarily, our following passages will be lists of do's. So if this, if this message seems a little bit kind of depressing, if it seems like I'm kind of up here going, stop doing this. 
because that's how Paul wrote this section. But next week, you'll get to hear what to do. So you got don't do this, and then the next two weeks, I'm going to come back, and I'll be like, but here's what you do. So if you feel kind of discouraged after this morning, it's just the text. Come back next week, and I'll tell you exactly what to do. God willing, I will. But the context of this, Paul, in in chapter 4, verses 17 through 24, he gave this overarching command. If you were here last week, you you, uh, remember I covered this opening command that Paul gave, and then he gives these lists of commands after that, kind of explaining what it means. So the overarching command is we are called to walk not like the Gentiles. Paul's using this picture of the Gentiles as those who are outside of the covenant community of God. We're not supposed to walk like those who aren't saved, right? Like, this is a very simple principle. Do not act like the unsaved. Act like Christians. If you're saved, you should live like it. That's basically what Paul is saying. If you're a Christian, it should change your life. You should live in certain ways. And then he goes through and he gives these lists of things to do. Last week, we saw the first kind of bank of commands. What does it look like to live like the saved? What does it look like to not live like the unsaved? Well, first, lay aside falsehood and speak the truth. Secondly, be angry and do not sin. Third, if you're a thief, get a job and earn honest money. Fourth, let no unwholesome talk come out of your mouth. Fifth, put away all bitterness, wrath, clamor, slander, and malice. And sixth, be kind, tenderhearted, and forgiving to one another. Well, that was kind of the first bank of commands. What does it look like to not live like the Gentiles, but to live like the saved? That's the first bank. Well, this morning, we are studying that kind of next bank of commands. So in light of this major command to live like Christians, Paul says, first and foremost, in verse 1, Therefore, be imitators of God as beloved children. Can I have somebody give me a glass of water? That's okay. My throat's really dry. Paul says, first and foremost, be imitators of God as beloved children. That's such... To me, this is such a beautiful command because he doesn't just call us to imitate God. I mean, obviously we know this is not actually possible for us, right? Like it's not physically possible for us to imitate God, but he says, imitate God as beloved children. So how are we to regard our spiritual father, uh, God the father? We're to look up to him as children. You know, children are naturally imitators. I think of Caspian, my son. It is so often that if I look at him and I start clapping my hands, he's just figuring out how to clap his hands. If I look at him and I start going like this, he looks at me and he goes. Right, he starts imitating. Uh, We were practicing music once and Bruce was playing the violin and Caspian's sitting right up here up front and he's looking at Bruce. Thank you very much. He's looking at Bruce play the violin and you can just see it clicking in his mind. He starts trying to kind of move his hands. Like, what is he doing with his hands? Right? And he starts imitating how to play a violin. Children are naturally imitators. They imitate what they see. This is natural for children. So Paul is using this picture and he's saying, what should be natural for you as Christians? You should imitate your father. You should be holy, be righteous. This harkens back to commands we see in multiple places throughout Scripture. I think it's listed three different times in the Old Testament. But Peter quotes it in 1 Peter chapter 1, verses 15 through 16. You'll recognize it as soon as you hear it. But like the Holy One who called you, be holy yourselves also in all your conduct. Because it is written, you shall be holy, for I am holy. 
Like I said, it's, it's written again and again in the Old Testament, and it's quoted here, that we are called to be holy just as God is holy. Well, right away with this first command, we see we need the help of the Spirit to do it. There's no way we can do this on our own. Well, what does this look like? What does it look like to be holy as God is holy? What does it look like to imitate God as beloved children? In verse 2, he says, walk in the love of Christ. And walk in love just as Christ also loved us and gave himself up for us, an offering and a sacrifice to God as a fragrant aroma. The Christian life ought to be defined by love for one another, love and mutual sacrifice. We see this again and again all throughout the New Testament, that the Christians were called to love one another. I mean, think even just in the book of Ephesians, even just in our limited study on this one epistle, how many times has Paul called us to be unified and to love one another? I don't know if I, I'm not even sure how many times. I know it's just again and again and again. It's like a constant refrain in the book. It's like Paul is stuttering. The end of almost every bank of commands, he's like, be unified, love one another, right? So the, the life of the Christian is to be characterized by love and unity. But then Paul gives this list of sins that we as Christians are to be completely separate from, right? So we got two do's, imitate God, impossible command, but we're still called to do it. We're still commanded to do this. That's good, that's righteous, that's holy. We're called to love one another just as Christ loves us. Again, impossible command, but still good, still holy. And then Paul goes into this list of sin that we are to be completely removed from. Verses 3 through 5. But sexual immorality or any impurity or greed must not even be named among you. It's not even to be mentioned in the same sentence as you, as is proper among saints. Nor filthiness and foolish talk, nor coarse jesting, which are not fitting but rather the giving of thanks. For this you know with certainty, that no one sexually immoral or impure or greedy who is an idolater has an inheritance in the kingdom of Christ and God. Instantly, this calls to mind verse 19 from chapter 4. And they, having become callous, have given themselves over to sensuality for the practice of every kind of impurity with greediness. If you are here last week, you remember I compared our current culture to this idea. That our current culture is so sexually immoral that it is greedy for this form of immorality. It's actively looking for new ways to practice this immorality. These list of sins, let's go through these. We are to be completely separate. They're not even to be named among us. Sexual immorality. If you know anything about the ancient world, the ancient world was fairly rife with sexual immorality. If you don't believe me, just read 1 Corinthians. I mean, it is penetrating the culture. I mean, it was not uncommon for daily visits to cult prostitutes. I mean, that was just part of the idol worship within that culture, right? It was, it was very common for there to be sexual promiscuity and sexual immorality. Prostitution was the greatest form of money in a lot of these places of pagan worship. So we understand... <coughs> what Paul is talking about. When he says sexual immorality, anything, any form of sexual conduct outside of one man and one, one woman in marriage for life, that covenant relationship, is sexual immorality. Jesus encompassed this to mean lust, but obviously it means actual uh, engaging in these forms as well. So anything from pornography to visiting prostitution to any kind of sexual disordering of God's created order falls into this. And I think we notice instantly, 
oh boy, our culture is just as bad as theirs. If anything, I often get in trouble for this, but I actually make a case that our culture was, is worse now than even Corinth was. Corinth was the rampant sexual immorality. If Ephesus was a little bit behind, not by much, but a little bit. But Corinth was filled with sexual immorality, but our culture is even worse than theirs. In Corinth, the worst thing that you would probably find would be some form of cross-dressing and homosexuality. That would be about the worst thing that you would find. Our culture has fundamentally denied the existence of male and female. The sexual refrain within our culture, I, I kid you not, I hear this all the time. The sexual refrain within our culture is, as long as it's consensual, it's good. That is how the sexual ethic is viewed within our current culture. As long as it's consensual, as long as it's two people who say it's okay, it's good. Now, it used to be as long as it's two consenting adults, it's good. But that's even being blurred in our day and age. It's even being blurred, and the question is being raised by not minority groups, that children have the ability to consent to these things. So I make the case that our culture is arguably worse than theirs. But Paul says this is not even to be named among you, nor any impurity. So we have sexual immorality. It's a little bit more specific. But he says not even impurity. And that's more broad, right? So we have a specific you know, sexual immorality, but then we have just generic impurity. You ought not to be impure in the way you think, in the way you talk, in the way you act. Like it's a broad category to be pure in your conduct. He says, nor any greed. You should not be greedy. It's interesting. I've been reading the To the Word Challenge that uh, Christ Church in uh, Idaho puts on every year. And I'm in the section of reading through Ephesians, or not, we're in Ephesians, uh, Exodus. And it's so interesting when the requirements for leaders in Exodus is given, one of the principal requirements for leaders, and still true for elders in the church today, is they must not be greedy. But it's even more specific. They must hate bribery. The leaders must hate bribery. That's really what this means when it says that you must not have any greediness even mentioned among you, is to not be greedy for what is not yours, not covetous, not desirous, but if you're in any form of leadership, you must despise the dishonesty of bribery. Oh man, I wish our leaders in general and our culture hated bribes. Wouldn't that be wonderful? There must not be filthiness, or foolishness of talk. The language, the language in Greek uh, in this is, is referring specifically to kind of the sexual, like sexually dirty speak, right? Like so, any of you who know me know that I grew up working construction, right? I laid flooring for years. I've worked in construction sites. I've worked mechanic sites. I've worked in the forestry industry. Uh, so if you've ever been in any of those environments, you instantly know what Paul is talking about. There are guys who can take anything, anything that's said, and turn it to some form of, like, dirty joke, right? And Paul's saying, no, no filthy talk. Don't talk about what happens in the bedroom. That's to be between you and your wife, and that's it. Don't, don't bring that up. He also says no foolish talk. This harkens back to, remember, we're supposed to have wholesome words. Last week we studied that. We're supposed to speak the truth. Well, foolish talk is the opposite of that. It's empty, just drivel. 
It's pointless words. This immediately harkens back to Matthew when Jesus says that every idle word will be judged. That's the type of language that is used here. Idle speech. It's empty. It's pointless. It's just stupid. We're also not supposed to have coarse jesting. And this is very specific. This is the turning of anything into a dirty, perverse, sexual joke. Right? This is, uh, this is that type of joking where everything is turned into some kind of innuendo. You're not supposed to have that. Now, there's some in the church who have applied this with a little bit more broad view in mind. And I think that's fine, but I think we can become a little bit legalistic on this. I think most of us have probably had the experience of getting yelled at for telling a fart joke. Paul probably didn't have a fart joke in mind when he wrote this. Just saying, but don't be legalistic about this, but don't be perverse in your language. So Paul gives these lists of commands of what not to do. But why? He explains. He explains why. He gives the reason why we're supposed to avoid these things. He says, for no one who does such is part of the kingdom. Listen to verse 5. For you know with certainty. Paul must have taught on this in the past. The Ephesian church knew with certainty. They knew that no one who is sexually immoral, impure, or greedy, who is an idolater, has an inheritance in the kingdom of Christ and God. Those who practice such things are showing evidentially that they are not saved. Those who make a habit of these things are not regenerate. I love what Spurgeon says on this, Charles Spurgeon. He says, what a sweeping sentence. This indeed is a sword with two edges. Many will flinch before it, and yet, though they flinch, they will not escape. For Paul speaks neither more nor less than the truth when he declares that no whoremonger, unclean person, covetous man, or those who are an idolater have any inheritance in the kingdom of Christ and of God. This is a sharp statement, right? Like this, this is a statement that would get you in trouble with a lot of modern churches, a lot of the church within our day saying such things that those who are sexually immoral, those who are impure, those who are greedy or idolaters are not part of the kingdom of Christ. That's not popular. That's never been popular. But this is blatantly what's being said. You cannot get away from the fact this is what Paul is saying. And if you want more info on specifically what this looks like, I'd encourage you to go home after this sermon and read 1 John chapter 1. 1 John chapter 1 dives into... In a shorter section, what it looks like to be a Christian. Basically, to sum it up, Paul is not saying that if you have ever been sexually immoral, you're not a Christian. Paul is not saying that if you've ever been greedy, you're not saved. Paul is not saying that if you've ever been covetous, that if you've ever been impure, that if you've ever told a dirty joke, you're out. That's not what Paul is saying. Paul is saying, in essence, what John is saying in 1 John 1, that those who make a practice of darkness are not Christians. What characterizes a Christian is being saved from those things. It is that we have been saved by the grace of God. And all those who repent, though they fall again, if you repent, he is faithful and just to forgive you and to cleanse you from all unrighteousness. That is the beautiful truth. But the reality is Paul is speaking in a harsh way, a very pointed harsh way, that the idolatry of these wicked acts 
cannot be lived out by the saved. But primarily, I think one of the most terrifying verses in this entire passage is verse 6. Let no one deceive you with empty words, for because of these things, the wrath of God comes on the sons of disobedience. Because of these acts of sin, the wrath of God falls like a hammer. If we're not careful, we in our modern context can only view the wrath of God as some future thing to happen after everyone dies. If we're not careful, we can kind of read that into every text and say, yeah, God's wrath will only come on people at the end of days. That's not what scripture teaches. I mean, what happened, what happened to the Jews in AD 70? The Jerusalem was sacked and destroyed. The streets literally ran with blood. The temple was destroyed. Not a single stone stood on another. And Jesus said, he prophesied that would happen in Matthew 24. We went through that. We were going through Matthew. And he said this happened because of their sin. God brought the Roman army down on their heads because of their sin. What happened to the Greeks? What happened to the Greek Empire? They were wiped out. What was going on in Greece around the time they were wiped out? Rampant sexual immorality, sin. What happened to Babylon? What happened to Persia? What happened to Egypt? They all were wiped out at the peak, at the height of this form of impurity. No, it is a scriptural reality. It is a hard scriptural reality. Please hear me. I do not say this with any joy or relishing this principle. It is a hard scriptural reality that rampant sin in a culture brings the wrath of God. Yes, it is true that all sinners will be judged on the last day and will partake of the fullness of the wrath of God in being sent to hell. That is true. But it is equally true to say that any culture that is rampant in immorality invites the wrath of God upon them. And it is merely the mercy of God that stays his wrath. And this is why Paul says, immediately after this, he says, these things invite the wrath of God upon them. And so he says in verse 7, do not be partakers with them. Therefore, because it's bringing the wrath of God down on their heads, have nothing to do with it. And this is a truth. We see this again and again through the Old Testament whenever God wipes out one of these very wicked people groups, whenever the wrath of God falls on people, it's very obvious that the people of God should never, ever, ever be a part of something where God's judgment is falling. They have to distance themselves. I mean, think of Sodom and Gomorrah, Abraham's prayer that God would spare Sodom and Gomorrah if there's only so many righteous people. Because he says, God, you will not punish the righteous with the sin, sinful. And so what does God do? God sends in his angels, and he pulls Lot and his family out. And, and the, the broad principle of this is you should not be involved where God's judgment is falling. And this is where I say this is easy to understand, this is hard to live out, right? 
This is easy to understand. It's easy for me to stand up here behind a pulpit and say, hey, you know, if you see some place where the judgment of God is going to fall, you probably shouldn't be there. That's an easy statement. But that's hard to live out. That's difficult because the world doesn't understand that. And let's be honest, we all live in the world. So what is my encouragement in this? My encouragement is fear God, not man. Fear God, don't fear man. And Paul goes on. I'm running behind. i got to pick up the pace here. Paul says, for you were formerly darkness, but now are light in the Lord. So he's reminding them, remember, a common theme in the book of Ephesians is Paul likes to point out where we were versus where we are. So he says, you were formerly darkness, but you are now light in the Lord. So therefore, walk as children of light. Clearly, he's, he's using an image of light and darkness as the common image throughout Scripture. Light obviously refers to righteousness. Darkness obviously refers to sin. This is a word picture. It's a very common word picture. But he says in verse 8, walk as children of light. Well, how are children of light supposed to walk? Verses 9 through 12 tells us, for the fruit of that light consists in all goodness and righteousness and truth. Trying to learn what is pleasing to the Lord. And do not participate in the unfruitful works of darkness, but instead even expose them. For it is disgraceful even to speak of the things which are done by them in secret. But all things become visible when they are exposed by the light. For everything that becomes visible is light. So how are children of the light supposed to walk? In all goodness and righteousness and truth. There's what you're supposed to do. We'll get into that more in the coming weeks. We are to try to learn what is pleasing to the Lord. We are not just to obey what he says. We are to study what he says. We are to dive into it and go, okay, I want to know what pleases my king. What defines a Christian? How does a child of the light walk? They go, what makes God happy? What brings him joy? That's what I'm going to do. That's what a Christian does. And then he says, here's those don'ts again. We've got a couple do's, right? We've got a little bit of, hey, that's kind of encouraging. Now we've got more don'ts. Again, sorry, but not really. Do not participate in the unfruitful works of darkness. John MacArthur says to participate in may also be translated to become a partaker together with others. The child of the light should not become involved in evil even by association. This is where it gets difficult, easy to understand, hard to live out. The phrasing that Paul uses is not just that we shouldn't do those acts, right? Obviously, a Christian should not engage in sexual immorality, impurity, greediness, any of the list. But the phrasing of Paul is saying not to even associate where those things are done. Don't be a part where those things are practiced. That becomes difficult when we live in a culture that relishes in those things. All of a sudden, this gets really challenging for us. And he says, instead, so don't associate, do not even by association be where those things are, but instead expose them. Again, MacArthur says, the Christian's responsibility goes further than not participating in the sinful ways of the world. He is instead even to expose them. Here is the phrase that just cut me to the core. To ignore evil is to encourage it. To keep quiet about it 
is to help promote it. That's hard. To be quiet about evil is to actively help to promote it. This is something that William Wilberforce, the great abolitionist of England, understood. He was told repeatedly by Christians, stop preaching about slavery. Stop it. Stop preaching the text that condemn man-stealing. Quit it. You don't have to endorse it. It's okay if you don't like what they're doing. But quit saying to stop it. And Wilberforce, with a resounding voice, said no. Because to ignore evil is to support it. This is something that has been unpopular within the church from day one. But we are not merely to lay low. A lot of times as Christians, we can kind of get a defeatist mindset, can't we? We can kind of go, nothing's going to change. Everything's going to stay the same. Everything's going to get worse until Christ comes back. But that's not how we're called to live. We are called to live and expose the darkness. To bring the kingdom. The darkness must be exposed. And how dark is this darkness? Paul is not saying this is easy. Paul is not giving some kind of easy, yeah, just expose the darkness. No, he says that the darkness is so disgraceful. It is so sinful that it's, it's disgraceful even to talk about what they do. Like to go into detail about what these people do is vile. Spurgeon said, commenting on this, you know, this idea that because it's vile, it was very common in his day, people would say, because the works of evil are vile, they should never be mentioned. And Spurgeon said, no, drag them into the light. There will be a great howling when those dogs of darkness have the light on them. But it has to be done. So if it's vile to talk about, but we're to expose them, how do we do this? Well... Apply the principles Paul has laid down so far. We're not to be vile in our language, right? There's no need to go into excessive detail, but we are to expose the evil. And when we do this, oh, there's such a beautiful promise. This next verse, verse 14, is such a beautiful promise. For this reason, for this reason, it says, Awake, sleeper, arise from the dead, and Christ will shine on you. We are not alone. This is not a one-man crusade. Christ is promised to shine on us. Paul takes in that quotation, it's not a direct quotation from the Old Testament. He actually takes three different passages and puts them together to show the beauty of the promise that we have. That this is a hard task, but he will shine on us. And then he says that this takes wisdom. Therefore, look carefully how you walk, in verse 15. Not as unwise, but as wise. Redeeming the time, for the days are evil. Understanding what the will of God is. Right On account of this, do not be foolish, but understand the will, what the will of the Lord is. So we're not to do this foolishly. We are called to expose darkness. If you're wondering what it would look like to expose darkness foolishly, think of being a church under persecution. Right, if you're in active persecution, like uh, think, of, think of areas where there is heavy persecution. Think of modern-day Egypt or Turkey or 
Iran or somewhere where they're beheading Christians en masse. It would be very foolish for the preacher on Sunday to get up in the public square and go, Islam is evil and Allah is not the true God. That would probably be pretty foolish, right? He'd be killed instantly. He'd be stoned or beheaded in the public square. We're to be wise. One thinks of the, the counsel that Christ gave to the disciples to be wise as serpents but gentle as doves. So, the application of this, this section right here, is we must in wisdom and righteousness expose evil because we are light. John MacArthur said, I want to read a section from his commentary that helped me understand this. He says, simply refusing to participate in a dishonest business or social practice will sometimes be such a strong rebuke that it costs us a job or a friendship. Right? So there are times where refusing to participate in evil will cause us to sacrifice. And sometimes that'll be enough. But he goes on, he says, often, of course, open rebuke is necessary. Silent testimony will only go so far. Failure to speak out against and to practically oppose evil things is a failure to obey God. Believers are to expose them in whatever legitimate biblical ways are necessary. Love that does not openly expose and oppose sin is not biblical love. We should be so mature in biblical truth and obedience, holiness, and love that part of the natural course of our life is to expose, rebuke, and offer the remedy for every kind of evil. So what does this look like practically? Well, I have a pulpit. I'm called to publicly proclaim the word of God and to publicly apply it to culture. So in an effort to set the stage for our coming passages where we'll deal with the nature of manhood and womanhood and specifically how to apply that to children, how to educate and raise our children, I believe the greatest evil in our culture right now, the greatest sexual immorality, impurity, and just demonic wickedness is that of the transgender crisis. And it's not just this. It is evil enough. It is disordered enough for a grown man or a grown woman to deny the image of God within themselves. But it is worse when they teach children such things. Remember what Christ said. It would be better to have a millstone hung around your neck and cast into the depth of the sea than to cause one of these little ones to stumble. But because these things are vile even to speak of, as I speak about it, I want to go into as little detail about the process as I possibly can. But I want to go into as much detail as I can about how this happens in our culture. Forgive me if I stick to my notes a little bit heavier in this section. Many hospitals within our culture are prescribing irreversible hormones to prepubescent children. Many, upwards of I believe 70 or so hospitals are providing what is known as gender affirming surgeries. 
on children as young as 12. Notably, recently, Vanderbilt Clinic in Nashville openly admitted to doing these things to the praise of the culture. They only recently pulled some of their info due to some backlash from different Christian organizations. This is happening in our culture, the butchering of our children in our culture. I want to read you two quotes. I warn you, these are not easy quotes. These are two quotes from two young children, 17 years old, who years before had transitioned, quote-unquote, from female to male. Listen to what they write on the internet. I hate my voice. Every time I open my effing mouth, I sound like a freak. I've ruined my life with my stupid decisions I made as a kid. The doctors ruined my life by allowing a barely functioning, mentally ill child with severe OCD and undiagnosed BPD to go on hormones that would completely change my body. I can manage to get the pitch of my voice up relatively decently. Remember, this is a woman, a young female, a young girl who transitioned to try to be a boy. I can get the pitch of my voice up relatively decently to the point where it's always in the androgynous or low female range. It never sounds female. Always like a very high-pitched, stereotypical gay male voice or a male trying to force a female voice and failing. I'm so tempted to just stop talking altogether. In my worst moments, all I want to do is tear out my vocal cords and be done with it. I've been on testosterone shots for about two years, although it was relatively sporadic and I wasn't very consistent with either shot. I've only just managed to get off the hormones. Thankfully, not a lot else changed. No facial hair, no facial changes. I never went through the surgeries. I'm still only 17. This person goes on to say that they're legitimately suicidal because of the decisions that they made as a child. And she ends by saying, it's all my fault. I don't know how long I can keep doing this. A legitimately suicidal person. Another one. I could read countless of these stories, but another girl who actively is trying to kill themselves, writing about how their mother has stopped them because they cannot handle the lack of joy in their life. Because as a child, a psychologist came and told them, because they didn't know what it meant to be female, that they should transition and become a male. This, when you hear the term gender-affirming care, this is what this looks like. It's being actively taught. Even the school system is actively teaching this, hiding it from parents. Certain major schools within the United States have created several different softwares of online chat rooms where adults can speak to children about their sexual fantasies. These chat rooms have specifically designed quick escape features to keep parents from being able to find out. So that if a parent walks into the room, the child can instantly exit out of this. Preschools and elementary schools have children's books that are open pornography, teaching the kids how to perform various sexual acts. This is what happens when a school claims to become open and affirming or an LGBTQ safe space. This is what I say when I say, make no mistake, the judgment of God will fall on this. It cannot be sustained. 
It is already falling on this. I mean, think of how quickly we've descended. Think of how fast this happened. Uh, there was a restructuring of the school system in the 1930s and 1950s. That's when the school system was fundamentally restructured. Before then, it was a primarily private education or handled on a local level. But it was primarily redone in the 50s or 60s into a kind of a Marxist worldview. Since then, that's not that long ago. That's 70, 80 years. In that amount of time, we now have such destructive ideology being openly taught in the school system. Openly supported in the school system. This is why, if I could, just for a moment, be just a pastor to you. Do not be where the judgment of God is falling. Do not be where the judgment of God is falling. And I know, I know the arguments. I know the arguments against pulling your kids out of school. I, I get it. I hear them all the time. I understand them. I understand the argument of saying it's important for us to keep our kids in there as a light. But let me ask this one counter question. Where is your line? Where is your line to be where the judgment of God is falling? Will it be like Loudoun County, Virginia, when your daughter is raped in the showers after a sporting event? Will it be when your son comes home as a girl and demands that you respect her pronouns? Will it be when the school system brings in drag queens to read books to your children, your kindergartners? All of these things actively happening as we speak. So I ask this, I understand the statements. I understand the pushback of the arguments, but I want to know this, where precisely is the line? Every Christian has one, I believe. Every Christian, Christian ought to have one. But you have to wrestle with this. To the letter, where is the line where you go, we cannot go further than this? We cannot allow our children to be taught or participate in this. You have to know where that exact line is. And then I encourage you to ask a second question. Where is God's line? What is God okay with? What is he happy? Remember, as Christians, Paul says we are to seek out what pleases God. What pleases God in your children's education? We're going to go into the positives of this in two weeks. Next week and two weeks. Again, I'm setting the stage. But I want to combat one argument I hear. Oftentimes we hear that we must have our kids here because they must be lights. That we have to be in the system in order to speak to it. That is a false dichotomy. It is logically incoherent. Yes, we are not of the world, and yes, we are in the world. But to be in the world is not necessarily to be in every aspect of the world. Let me ask you this. Do I have to be a member of a human trafficking ring to say it's sin? Do I have to be a member of a human trafficking ring in order to say, stop? No, obviously not. Let me ask you this. Do I have to be a member in the Hells Angels in order to witness to them every Sturges when they come here, every Sturges rally? I don't have to be a member. No. I have to be present. I don't have to be a member. Do I have to be a witness to a murder in order to say it is sin? Do I have to be in the operating room of the abortionist to say it ought not happen? Do I have to pay for the abortion in order to say it's not wrong? Do I have to let a pedophile use with, loose with my son in order to say that he should not touch kids? 
Do I have to stick my head under a semi-truck wheels to know that it'll kill me? The early Christians did not visit, visit the prostitutes in order to witness to them. In fact, read Corinthians, Paul openly condemns it. They did not bow down to the Ephesian goddess in order to witness in the courts. They refused, the Christian gathering refused to be present when the pagan gods were worshipped. They would stand outside of the pagan temples, and then when the worship was done, they would go in in order to witness. They would not participate in the worship. They would not light the incense before the statue of the emperor. It is a false dichotomy to say that we have to be part of something in order to speak to it. And I'll demonstrate it. I don't have any children in the school system here. Yet I still work with the school system here. I've been in the school. I've dealt with kids in the school. As we look to getting our new meeting location, one of the things I said that I was most excited about was the ability to work with kids and youth, to create a space for them and minister to them. We have opportunity to do that in our church. Many of you don't have kids here. You can still work with the kids here. We have opportunities within this church to work with the Fellowship of Christian Athletes, something I personally am going to be doing. There are multiple ways to witness to, to love, to speak, to share the gospel with, and be a light in the current culture without sacrificing yourself or your kids on a pagan altar. To summarize Paul, do not partake in darkness, expose it. The days are evil. We must be wise, but there is good news. Our God can redeem the evil and save great sinners. One of my favorite quotes is from John Newton, a slave ship captain, a wicked man who was redeemed by amazing grace. He penned the hymn Amazing Grace, if you don't know my little in-joke there. He said this, although my memory's fading, I remember two things very clearly. I am a great sinner, and Christ is a great Savior. We are to call out into the current culture the same message that Christ began to call out to the culture when he was here. The same message John the Baptist called. The same message Paul called and Peter called and Athanasius and Augustine and Luther and Calvin and Edwards. All the way through history, the exact same message, repent, for the kingdom of heaven is at hand. And then Paul gives closing commands. I'll go through these as quickly as I can because I know we're over time. He says, do not be drunk with wine, for that is dissipation, but be filled with the Spirit. I want to make one thing clear. This verse has been very misused throughout history to say that wine itself is a sin. That's not true. If you read elsewhere in Scripture, wine is compared to a blessing of God. Drinking is not a sin. What Paul is saying, being drunk is a sin. To kind of explain this to you, wine, alcohol is sharp. It's a blessing of God, but it is a sharp blessing. It is to be used wisely and righteously. We are to speak to one another in psalms, hymns, and spiritual songs. We are to sing together. We are to make melody with our hearts to the Lord. We are to give thanks always in the name of Christ to the Father. And then that last verse, I just want to touch on this because this directly sets the stage for next week's text. He says, finally, in this verse, he says, Be subject to one another in the fear of Christ. That the life of the Christian, Paul is introducing this idea here, the life of the Christian is to be summarized by love for one another, by unity of the church, and mutual submission and sacrifice. 
And this perfectly sums up what we are about to partake in here. We are about to gather around the Lord's table. What does it mean to be subject in submission to one another? It means we are all equal. There are no second-class Christians. In Sunday school this morning, we were talking about Gnosticism, one of the early heresies, and one of the prerequisites for Gnosticism was that they believed that, yeah, there were the normal Christians, but then there were the super-Christians, right? They were the ones over here who had extra revelation. It's not true. If you are saved by grace alone, through faith alone, and Christ alone, you are on equal footing, a saint, completely justified, completely righteous before God. So this morning, I want to read a passage before we partake of communion. In 1 Corinthians 10, verses 14 through 17, Paul kind of introduces the idea of communion. He says, therefore, my beloved, flee from idolatry. Really similar language to what we read this morning, right? I speak as to prudent people. You judge what I say. Is not the cup of blessing which we bless a sharing in the blood of Christ? Is not the bread which we break a sharing in the body of Christ? Since there is one bread, we who are many are one body, for we partake of the one bread. You know, this was not an easy message to preach. It's not an easy passage to wrestle through. I wrestled with the Spirit all week on this text, and I wrestled and struggled honestly with my own heart. I hope you know I said nothing out of anger this morning or malice, but in love. Love for you all. Love for this community. Love for this town, for this state. This week I've been broken over this passage and felt empty. So if I could speak from my heart for just a moment. One of my fears in the modern church is that we miss the beauty of the sacred. We're so flippant in worship. This is a sacred moment. It's a blessed moment. We are going to partake of the sacred meal together. It is a real communion with Christ. And I fear all too often in modern worship services and even here, I fear that sometimes I can come across like a car salesman. That's not what's happening here this morning. I'm not trying to sell you anything. My heartfelt desire for you, for this church, for this community, for this city, for the state, is that you would have a real encounter with Christ. I don't want you to show up and leave and feel like I was just yelling at you or trying to sell you a pitch. I genuinely desire you to go out those doors into this community, having met with Christ, having experienced something beyond just the physical, a true encounter with the creator of the universe. I want you to encounter him through the singing of psalms and hymns and spiritual songs. I want you to encounter him as we open the word and study the word, even, yes, these very difficult passages. I want you to leave having met with him. My heartfelt desire as your pastor is that you would not feel like this is merely a social club, but a place of true worship and healing. Because I know, believe me, I know we live in a cheap plastic culture where nothing is genuine. In our culture, nothing is real. We don't have real relationships anymore. We have internet connections and, and the, the quickest way to get in touch with someone is to send them a mere message on their phone, not to speak with someone in reality. We live in an empty and a shallow culture. I want you to come here and encounter something real. And the truest of all truths, like Jesus would say, truly, truly, I say to you, the most true thing 
of all reality is personified in the act of communion. Because in the act of communion, we are proclaiming through what we do, through a physical act, we are proclaiming, I'm a sinner and I can't save myself. That I am not better than anyone out there. But for the grace of God, there go I. We are saying, I am not saved because I'm better. I was formerly dead. Remember the language of Ephesians. I was formerly dead. I was formerly darkness. I was formerly separated from Christ. But now, I am alive. I am united with Christ. And I am light in Christ. And through this act, we proclaim this through the remembrance of the shed blood of Christ and the broken body of Christ. So this morning... This is why I always invite you the same way. I do not give you anything new. This is not a new invention, but something old. If it is your confession that Christ is Lord and that you are saved by grace alone, through faith alone, and Christ alone, the table is open to you, and I invite you to come. This morning, if that is your confession, I invite you to come. We have wine on my right, your left. It's real, real wine. And we have grape juice on this side. So this morning, if that is your confession... I invite you to come. says in 1 Corinthians 11, 23 through 26, for I received from the Lord that which I also delivered to you, that the Lord Jesus in the night in which he was being betrayed took bread. When he given thanks, he broke it and said, this is my body, which is for you. Do this in remembrance of me. Let us take the bread in remembrance of Christ's broken body for us. In the same way, he took the cup after supper, saying, This cup is the new covenant in my blood. Do this as often as you drink it in remembrance of me. For as often as you eat this bread and drink the cup, you proclaim the death of the Lord until he comes. Let us take the cup in remembrance of Christ's blood. This morning we covered a lot of don'ts, a lot of hard things from the Apostle. Over the next two weeks, I hope to cover more of the do's, more of the encouragements and uplifting. But I truly do believe what we just partook in, as Paul said in 1 Corinthians 10, is the cup of blessing. We are blessed to remember the gospel. So this morning, in light of the gospel, would you stand with me? And let's close out in the doxology. Praise God from whom all blessings flow. Praise Him all creatures here below. Praise Him above ye heavenly host. Praise Father, Son,
leave you with the closing words of Ephesians 4, which we went over last week. Be kind to one another, tenderhearted, and forgiving one another, just as God in Christ also has forgiven you.